Hello, welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am the host of this show. And if you are new, just know that this is not the starting point for you. Go back at least a few episodes and start with the commentary section on the New Testament, or ideally the beginning of this season, season five, or hey, this is season five. You can go all the way back to season number one, episode number one. That would be the best place to start. But assuming that you are not new to the show, we will continue on. And today's episode will be getting into the Beatitudes as we start digging into the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, the other thing that I do want to say, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time or the time before, uh, who knows, but uh, we did have another patron come on, Keith. So, thank you very much, Keith. I don't know where you are in the show, if you're at the beginning, at the middle. If I remember right, though, I think we talked via email and you were going back near the beginning and uh, binging through many episodes, so it'll be a while before you hear this. But if you are also keeping up to date, then thank you very much. If not, thank you very much from the past. And so, getting on, um, we will just go ahead and jump into this next section of commentary, starting the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. We'll start by reading, and again, I've mentioned before the the translation that I usually use is the complete Jewish Bible. They do not translate names. They keep the Hebrew, and therefore I will be struggling through a few parts of this, so please forgive me. I will do my best. So, starting off, Matthew chapter 4, 23 through 25, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Yeshua went all over the Galil, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing people from every kind of disease and sickness. Word of him spread throughout all Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, and those who were held in the power of demons, and epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Huge crowds followed him from the Galil, the ten towns, Yerushalayim, Yehuda, and Evar Hayardin. Seeing the crowds, Yeshua walked up the hill. After he sat down, his Talmudim came to him, and he began to speak. This is what he taught them. How blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How blessed are those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. How blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How blessed are those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. So that wraps up the account in Matthew, but there is also another account in Luke of Yeshua preaching on these same themes. Some view this as reporting the same sermon, while most scholars view the Luke account as a separate sermon on the same themes. Often they're referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which would be what we just read, and the Sermon on the Plain, respectively, with that being the one in Luke. Either way, they both begin with Yeshua preaching the Beatitudes, so the Luke account is definitely a helpful addition here. So we'll go ahead and read that, and that does add some more context to some of these specific things that are mentioned. This would be Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. 
It was around that time that Yeshua went out to the hill country to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his Talmudim and chose from among them twelve to be known as his emissaries. Shimon, who he named Kepha, Andrew, his brother, Yaakov, Yohanan, Philip, Bar-Talme, Mariyahu, Thomas, Yaakov ben Halfe, Shimon, the one called the Zealot, Yehuda ben Yaakov, and Yehuda from Kriat, who turned traitor. Then he came down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his Talmudim was there, and a great number of people from all Yehuda, Yerushalayim, and the coast around Zor and Zidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being healed, and the whole crowd was trying to touch him, because power kept going out from him, healing everyone. He looked at his Talmudim and said, How blessed are you poor, for the kingdom of of God is yours. How blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. How blessed are you who are crying now, for you will laugh. How blessed are you whenever people hate you and ostracize you and insult you and denounce you as a criminal on account of the Son of Man. Be glad when that happens. Yes, dance for joy, because in heaven your reward is great, for that is just how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already had all the comfort you will get. Woe to you who are full now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and cry. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is just how their fathers treated the false prophets. So prior to this set of teachings, Yeshua's attention was on the diverse crowds that followed him. Whether the crowds could hear this section of the sermon, or it was just the disciples or the Talmudim, the theme holds true that God loves the outcast, the poor, the downtrodden, the unwashed masses, the aliens. Not only does he love them, he reaches out to them, he shows them mercy, and he blesses them. This would not have been the general attitude of most of the Jews of the day, especially considering the presence of so many unclean persons and many likely non-Jewish foreigners. Keep in mind that the first recorded people to notice and follow the signs of Yeshua's birth were foreign pagans. The first to be directly told of the occurrence were common shepherds, far from the unfolding that most Jews would have expected. There are two seemingly opposite ways of interpreting uh, interpreting the Beatitudes. Yeshua could be stating that these traits are positive and that those who seek them will be blessed. He could also be stating that these are negative traits, but even and especially those in these lowly positions will be blessed and raised up from them. Although positive and negative are opposites, obviously, the takeaway from either interpretation leads to the same resulting themes. I will look at both perspectives as I go through this. The traits can also be looked at as spiritual or more secular, immaterial or material, the state of being of the soul or the state of being of the body. These will also each be given consideration. And even though those do seem opposites as well, spiritual or secular, the body versus the soul, the material versus the immaterial, again, they all lead to the same conclusions. The specific traits mentioned mirror Yeshua's temptations and seem to be an elaboration on the themes. This keeps with the trend of elaborating on God's principles. 
God gave the law in the form of the broad Decalogue, then elaborating laws, then the law was further elaborated on and explained later with Moses's mountain sermon in Deuteronomy. Yeshua's ministry begins with the broad topics of repentance in the kingdom. Yeshua's wilderness experience further shows what temptations we need to fight and repent of when we give in, as well as what it means to live righteously as a member of God's kingdom. The Beatitudes further elaborate on these topics, and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is a fairly thorough explanation and elaboration of the law as God intends for it to be held both inside and outside the nation of Israel. It highlights why we must repent and how to live as a part of the kingdom of God, which again is the same thing that happened in Deuteronomy. You had the law given, and then you had Moses who spoke a sermon on a mountain that elaborated on how you were to act this out within the nation, uh, talking directly to the people. And so again, there's a lot of parallels that go on here, Old Testament and New, and that's usually the case because it's all connected. Guess what? So let's uh, go ahead and start with the first section that might be all we do, um, but let's do the first one. So the first one would be Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. How blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So as we look at this, the poor in spirit are those who are humbled and rely on God to fulfill their spiritual needs. There are many ways to interpret this and apply it, both as a positive or a negative, again, both in the spiritual sense or the secular. So spiritually, being poor in spirit could be viewed as a negative state. However, through the evolution of their spiritual health from poor to righteous, they will become members of and partakers in the kingdom of God, and thus the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's the idea of like sanctification, for example. The flip side of this spiritual point of view would be that being poor in spirit is a reference to the realization and recognition of our spiritual ineptitude and standing before God in relation to our own merits. Due to this recognition, we rely fully on God, not ourselves, and trust in His faithfulness. In this case, being poor in spirit is a good thing. It's the fact that we recognize that we truly are poor in spirit, that we don't live up to God's standards, and we come to him in humbleness. So that's a positive thing. Now, uh, again, we can look at this spiritually or secularly, positively or negatively. So uh, let's go secular with this. Let's go more materialistic. So we may be poor in spirit in the sense of being humble in regards to our economic or societal standing which would be uh, possibly a positive trait, because this leads us to focus on God's kingdom as we recognize the insignificance and irrelevancy of our role in the kingdom of man. Uh, So that would be a positive thing. On the contrary, being poor in spirit may be a negative in the form of not being confident or assertive or action-oriented when relating to the world. We are instead passive, waiting on God to handle everything himself. Yeshua is stating that even these weak, poor individuals will become part of the kingdom of heaven, not just the expected religious zealots and the hyper-righteous. So uh, all of these would be possibly uh, legitimate ways of interpreting this passage. Personally, though, I believe that they are all applicable. 
There is a similar view among Jewish scholars that would definitely be worth noting here. I think I've mentioned it, but long ago, maybe near the Ven Armani interviews, sometime around that time period. Um, this goes back to the rabbinic methods of interpretation that are based on what they call four levels, and they use the acronym PARDES, or PARDES, whatever it is. It's P-A-R-D-E-S. These would be Peshat, Ramaz, Darash, and Saad. So, and that's assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly, which I very well might not be. Peshat refers to the plain or the simple interpretation. So um, that would be more of the, I guess, the version of the material or the secular interpretation, the way I'm saying. It is used for the most obvious and simple meaning of the text. Now, remez means hence. It is used for the allegorical meaning beyond the literal sense. So that would be getting into the more spiritual, maybe a blend between the two. Darash is to inquire or seek. It is used for the comparative or the midrashic meaning, looking at similar occurrences of a word. So this would be like what I do, going back to the parallels that are drawn in other scriptures at other times, Old Testament, New Testament, that kind of thing. Um, that would be this comparative meaning, especially looking at specific words and the meanings of those words. I will look at the Luke account and the Matthew account, and that would be an example of this. Uh, so then sod, or sowed, whatever that is, relates to a secret or a mystery. It is used for the esoteric and the mystical meaning, often used in the Kabbalah. Often Jewish scholars believe that a single passage or even a single word can have all four of these meanings at the same time. I am a strong believer in this principle as well, not solely on the Jewish view, but the general concept of God using scripture, prophecy, history, words, symbols, etc. in multiple ways at one time. Though all that is stated in Matthew 4.3 is the single phrase, poor in spirit, I believe that this single phrase has many meanings and is relevant to teaching multiple points. At the same time, caution is advised when using this principle because it can be easy to attribute meaning to passages that sounds good, but in reality contradicts the text or other passages or etymological aspects and or other factors. So only an interpretation that interoperates with all of these and other relevant considerations should be kept as a possible valid interpretation worthy of further consideration. If you have a contradiction between this and other theological points or other parts in scripture or things like that, then that is probably not a valid thing. The, the contradiction probably does not exist, and therefore you're probably either wrong about A or B, and yeah, that's probably not something you should um, count on. <laughs> Maybe you should pursue figuring out what part you're wrong about, but uh, don't count on that interpretation right off the bat that way. So regardless of the interpretation chosen out of the four that I listed originally, they all point towards de-emphasizing the self while emphasizing God through a progression of recognizing our own inadequacies while relying on the faithfulness of God. That's the point. We must be humble in spirit and rely on God, and in doing so, we will enter into his kingdom. Referencing some scripture that Yeshua earlier quoted during his own trials in the wilderness shows the same principles at work. 
And this would be Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 10, which again, a lot of parallels with Deuteronomy. You are to remember everything of the way in which Adonai led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling and testing you in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would obey his mitzvot or not. He humbled you, allowing you to become hungry, and then fed you with manna, which you neither, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, to make you understand that a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai. During these 40 years, the clothing you were wearing didn't grow old, and your feet didn't swell up. Think deeply about it. Adonai was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his child. So obey the mitzvot of Adonai your God, living as he directs and fearing him. For Adonai your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and water welling up from the depths and valleys and on hillsides. It is a land of wheat and barley and grapevines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food in abundance and lack nothing in it, A land where the stones contain iron, and the hills can be mined for copper. So you will eat and be satisfied, and you will bless Adonai your God for the good land he has given you. So I'm guessing that you can get a lot of these parallels here, the aspect of humbling yourself, that it is something that these struggles are things that God wants us to go through as we uh, realize that we need to count on him, that our faith in him, that his righteousness, that his power is truly what drives us, that he is behind all things we are going through, and it brings us through them, and not only brings us through the difficulties that we're going through, but is bringing us through them to get us to this new kingdom. And uh, again, you get the different parallels here, whether it's the physical uh, land that they are heading to, the land of Israel, or whether it's the spiritual uh, kingdom of heaven, talking about uh, the afterlife and that idea, or whether it's a blend, talking about becoming a part of the kingdom of God as a whole, which is an immaterial thing, but in a material world. Uh, Again, regardless of the interpretation, it's the same parallel. It's the same thing. So there is a corresponding link to being economically poor and relying on God to provide for our needs, the spiritual and the physical. The less money and wealth we have, the more we are forced into further reliance on God. There are also many negative influences that money can have in regards to our spiritual health and wealth. While money in and of itself does not corrupt, If we are not uh, poor in spirit, then we will not be able to handle the influences of this wealth. If we focus on worldly wealth instead of putting it in the insignificant state it deserves, it will draw our focus and reliance from God and toward ourselves and other humans. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 And then Matthew chapter 19, verses 20 through 26. I'm going to read both of these accounts that are very relevant here. Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, if you are generous, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if you have an evil eye, if you are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. And then the second account, the young man said to him, I have kept all these commandments. Where do I still fall short? Yeshua said to him, if you are serious about reaching the goal, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he was wealthy. Then Yeshua said to his Talmudim, yes, I tell you that it will be very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, I tell you that it is easier for a camel to pass through the knee, uh, to pass through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the Talmudim heard this, they were utterly amazed. Then who, they asked, can be saved? Yeshua looked at them and said, Humanly, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So, that kind of wraps up that aspect of being poor in spirit. There is that, um, that fairly obvious economic um, line and parallel that I read in the Luke account that I should probably mention here as well. Because in the Luke account, in chapter 6, verse 20, he starts off with, How blessed are you poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Now, notice he says poor, not poor in spirit. He's going purely material on this account in virtually every aspect. Uh, but again, we're only looking at this one. Uh, but not only do you have the blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed you are, but then you have, but woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, uh, in verses 24, 25, twice, and then 26. So in verses 24, it says, and in between, it is that... Uh, aspect of how blessed you are when people hate you and ostracize you and insult you. And again, that's how the Beatitudes are wrapped up in Matthew and Luke that separates the blessed are you's from the woe to you's. And so um, the first blessed are you is blessed are you poor for the kingdom of God is yours. The first woe to you is a direct relation, but woe to you who are rich for you have already had all the comfort you will get. And so when we're speaking of this uh, more physical aspect of the poor in spirit, uh, it, it's not one that you can just discount. Although most people, I would say, do. Most of the uh, commentary and sermons that I've heard on this say that, oh, well, this isn't obviously talking about money and being poor or rich because, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's poor in spirit and there's all these different connections. And yes, which uh, all of that is totally true. Um, however, uh, the first part is not. Uh, at least I don't believe. I don't believe you can totally discount the physical aspect because in the Luke account, <laughs> that's the only one that exists. And so you have to totally discount what's being taught in Luke, which I don't think is a very good idea. So when you look at Luke, he is specifically saying, Yeshua is saying um, that when you're poor, blessed are you who are poor for the kingdom of God is yours. But woe to you who are rich for you have already had all the comfort you will get. And so... The idea here is that when you are poor, 
when you do not have a lot economically, you're not wealthy, you don't have a lot of money or material possessions, uh, that can be a good thing. Now, number one, either it's a bad thing, you know, sucks for you, but, you know, in heaven it'll be better, or it's a good thing, hey, good that you don't have much, because they're not tying you down and holding you back. You can actually come into the kingdom of heaven. You know, either way, good, bad, but material is where we're going here if we're doing the parallel of the, the Luke account. And so, um, it's this blessed are you, but woe to you who are rich. Because again, like that Matthew, that later Matthew account that I read where the, the rich man came to Yeshua, basically said, I'm, I'm doing all the right things. And Yeshua says, well, sell everything you have and follow me, uh, which is basically the call for everybody in a spiritual sense, but he's saying it in a material sense here. He's saying, you know, actually sell your material possessions, give away all your wealth. And then me, uh, I am God. I am the son of God, the son of man. I am here right now. You can follow me and be my personal disciple. You know, the man probably didn't really fully understand what all that meant, but that's what was being said. And so uh, because Yeshua was here in bodily form, uh, this material story and example could be given in this way. And it was. And so uh, you have this material example of sell your stuff and follow me. And uh, the guy couldn't do it. He had too much. Again, it was too much holding him back. And that's part of why Yeshua says, as is accounted in Luke, that uh, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your reward. And it's that idea that if you have all these things here on earth now, you know, it might be nice. It might feel good. You might be able to satisfy yourself. You can live according to the self and have everything you could ever want. But when you look at this from an eternal perspective, uh, that's not a really good thing if everything beyond this very short light of life of yours is uh, uh, nothing. Uh, beyond this, you have nothing. If that is all you get in eternity is the little bit of pleasure and good things that you can amass for yourself in your short lifetime, uh, that's not really all that much. Uh, woe to you. It's right. Uh, yes, that's, uh, that's not a very good thing. And uh, the same thing is referred to in the other Matthew example that I mentioned where uh, it's the you can't have two masters and the earlier part of that is the, the good eye, then your whole body will be full of light. If you have an evil eye, your body will be full of darkness. It's again this contrast, the light versus the dark, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Are you uh, generous or are you withholding? Are you stingy? And so again, it's how do you use your things? Well, if you are super generous becomes difficult to amass very large amounts of wealth because there is a lot of material need in the world. Uh, for 99% of people that are listening to this and people around you, uh, we are around people that are in need all of the time. And if we spent a lot of our material resources and our time and our effort into helping these people, we probably would not have massive amounts of wealth built up because we're giving it away. However, if you are stingy and you're hoarding it for yourself, again, it's all about the self, then you are going to have a lot more. And so you would think, hey, good for you. You've got a lot more stuff. Well, yes, but <laughs> then that's where the woe to you poor and all those negative aspects come into play. And so, uh, again, it's, it's these things that keep getting repeated and elaborated on over and over again that kind of help when we uh, dig into it more. So as I'm going through this, I'm also, I, I'm not just looking at uh, just a general commentary on, hey, what does this mean? And how do we apply this? Uh, although that's very important, and I am doing that. But in addition to that, my, my other focus here is on the state. 
It's how do we look at society? How do we look at the government, the authorities over us? How do we assess the theology of obedience? That's what I'm really trying to do is build out a theology of obedience, obedience to God, but he also says obey the authorities. But there seem to be a lot of contradictions there. And so how do we deal with this? How do we then live? So when assessing the state, we must apply the same biblical principles as we do to ourselves. Unfortunately, the state is the opposite of poor in spirit. Not only this, but it teaches its citizens to act and think likewise. It is proud, not humble, and encourages us all to take pride in its existence and actions, which would be patriotism. There is no regard for God, but rather in most states, there is a stated and deliberate attempt to separate itself from God's principles. You know, separation of church and state. Uh, and, well, I do say, I, I recognize the reasons for these things. I, I get it. I get it. But from a biblical, theological perspective, that there's a lot of issues here. Instead of using humble means, the state demands the respect, recognition, and obedience of its citizens through force and coercion. It does not rely on God or God's word for its authority or its needs, but rather relies on its own abilities and the actions of other humans to maintain and grow its existence and its prosperity. The prosperity and existence that is sought is based on secular physical wealth and is very self-focused in a spiritual sense. In order for us as individuals to live out the principles of being poor in spirit, we must place our trust and reliance on God using his principles for our foundations. Relying on the state for societal needs would be participating in forcing secularly derived values on other individuals, which is the opposite of being humble. It is relying on physical and human methods to provide for society, not spiritual and biblical methods and principles. Uh, the whole idea of uh, God's word alone. The stance of we can manage society through our own human wisdom via forcing others to do what we think is right, legitimated through secular opinion, is a position of taking pride in the accomplishments of man as a collective and the kingdom of man as an institution. It is an admission that we are placing our hope and faith in the realm of man not through humility of man's abilities in adequacy, but through pride in man's wisdom and power. It's the opposite idea of being poor in spirit. So again, not only is the state the opposite of all of the principles, no matter what interpretation you look at of being poor in spirit, uh, if you look at the state as an entity, the relationship between the citizen and the state is a relationship that is also the opposite of being poor in spirit. And uh, the implications of that, The when you look at, again, this full principle of being poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven is theirs, it's this idea that when you are poor in spirit, and we've talked about what that means, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is the idea of uh, joining and becoming uh, part of the kingdom of heaven, which has multiple uh, aspects to it. You've got the the aspects on earth where we are physically here on earth. We are materially here. And while we are, we can be a part of the kingdom of God. It's not like we wait until we die and then we're part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Uh, no, we can be a part of the kingdom of God right here, right now. 
during our material existence. But that is not the full manifestation of what this idea of the kingdom of God is. What what that is, is something talking about uh, the, the final manifestation of the Sabbath as well. It's this idea of having a full and final rest with God, of uh, being in his realm, not on this physical world full of pain and death and hunger and thirst and all of these different things. But it is once all of this is washed away and we have a new heaven and a new earth, that is the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. And so uh, when it says that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, then that is saying that uh, not only do they get to enter the kingdom of God here on earth, and again, you have that rich man example that Yeshua talks about in another passage where the rich man has a hard time, the physically rich man. So uh, the economically poor are blessed because they are not held back from all of their riches and materialism. They are not glued to them, and they can more easily become a part of the kingdom of God materially while they're here on earth. But in addition to that, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, those that come to God uh, recognizing their lack of adequacy and relying fully on him, having faith in him, relying on his righteousness. Blessed are they, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Again, the spiritual sense, new heaven, new earth, everything is good. And that is something that you can have faith in, that you will rely on, and that you will be a part of. And so again, you've got the material aspect, the spiritual aspect, all of these different aspects. But none of these aspects correspond with, uh, basically, statism. It, it just doesn't. It doesn't at all. You know, the state itself does not correspond to any of these principles. Uh, being a patriot of the state, uh, unfortunately, does not uh, correspond with these either. And we will get into a, a lot more of this in much later episodes. So uh, don't think that what I mean is that... Uh, we should rebel against the government. I've talked about this a lot previously, that that is, that is not at all what I'm saying. Revolution, rebellion, that would also be going against God's principles. Uh, but I, I, I'm also not saying that, oh, you know, government doesn't play any role in the world, and that uh, God doesn't want governments. Well, yes and no. So uh, governments do play a role, and God does say that he puts people in power and that he uses them uh, he also says that we should not have a king over us, and that is not his way. That's rejection of him. So obviously you're choosing kingdom of man instead of choosing kingdom of God. So instead of God ruling you, you have man ruling you. You're relying on that uh, wisdom of man, the power of man, the, all of the things that man can achieve. We can create a better society. We can take care of our fellow neighbor. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. We as a nation, it's that national pride, that patriotism, Instead of we, the church, we, the kingdom of God, through the power of God, through the wealth of God, we can achieve all of these things. We can achieve a better society. We can achieve taking care of the poor. We can achieve X, Y, Z, because we, the kingdom of God, can do this. Now, can you see how those are different? We, the kingdom of God versus we, the kingdom of man. Those are two different things, and you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and state. Those are two different things. You can't serve the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. I've uh, covered just a few episodes ago the whole fact that the kingdom of man is overall ruled by the adversary. And that has been laid out very clearly. 
And so you can't follow that and follow God. You can't follow the adversary's uh, dominion as well as being a part of God's dominion. That doesn't really work. Uh, so that's the issue. But we also do have the issue that we materially exist in this domain where the adversary does rule in ways and where God does rule in ways. And we are a part of God's kingdom, but we are interacting with the kingdom of man. So again, kind of the point of uh, all of these episodes is, uh, what does that look like? And uh, how can we separate the two, live within the two? How are we to live given these aspects? So that'll be all I'll do for this episode. Uh, We'll get into the next one, Matthew 5, 4, how blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And we'll look at that uh, kind of in a very similar way. And the next few I'll go through a little quicker than I did this one since I kind of went through the whole overview as well and then got into the specific one. So um, we'll do that. I'll, I'll go through a few of these Beatitudes, see how far we get in the following episode, and we'll continue on through the Sermon on the Mount. So... Until then, I just want to say thank you very much for everyone. Thank you for just listening, uh, creating a reason for this show, and uh, I really do appreciate that. Thank you for recommending the show to others. I got an email from someone. I just saw it today. I don't know when it came through, probably recently, because I check that email fairly often. And they said that they just uh, found out about the show, and they loved it, and they went back to the first few episodes, and they've been recommending it to friends and family. So again, word of mouth, that, that is a great thing. Uh, even beyond word of mouth, if you want a different way to support this show, leaving ratings and reviews because we live in a digital world and that is the digital version of word of mouth. So that would be greatly appreciated. And uh, the top one would be uh, the thank you that I gave at the beginning of the show, uh, the Patreon supporters. So being able to financially support this show so that I don't have to financially support it myself out of pocket. Uh, this is something that you are supporting so that uh, it can get out there to anybody that is looking into any of this type of information. They can find it because uh, these patrons are paying for it. They're the ones that are doing this. So I may be doing the work and doing the show, but they're the ones paying for it all. And that is awesome. So thank you very much for that. And I guess I'll just come back next time. If you have any questions, uh, concerns, anything, please reach out via email, ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And I guess that's it. So I'm out. Peace. This has been Our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.